Welcome to this special Uvula audio presentation of The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus by L. Frank Baum. All Uvula audio books are in the public domain. Part 2. Santa's Manhood When Claus came, the valley was empty, save for the grass, the brook, the wildflowers, the bees, and the butterflies. If he would make his home here, and live after the fashion of men, he had to have a house. This puzzled him at first, but while he stood smiling in the sunshine, he suddenly found beside him old Nelko, the servant of the master woodsman. Nelko bore an axe, strong and broad, with blade that gleamed like burnished silver. This he placed in the young man's hand, and then disappeared without a word. Claus understood, and turning to the forest's edge, he selected a number of fallen tree trunks, which he began to clear of their dead branches. He would not cut into a living tree. His life among the nymphs who guarded the forest had taught him that a live tree is sacred, being a created thing endowed with feeling. But with the dead and fallen trees it was different. They had fulfilled their destiny. As active members of the forest community, and now it was fitting that their remains should minister to the needs of men. The axe bit deep into the logs at every stroke. It seemed to have a force of its own, and claws had but to swing and guide it. When shadows began to creep over the green hills, to lie in the valley overnight, the young man had chopped many logs into equal lengths and proper shapes for building a house, such as he had seen the poor classes of men inhabit. Then, resolving to await another day before he tried to fit the logs together, Claus ate some of the sweet roots he well knew how to find, drank deeply from the laughing brook, and lay down to sleep on the grass, first seeking a spot where no flowers grew, lest the weight of his body should crush them. And while he slumbered and breathed in the perfume of the wondrous valley, the spirit of happiness crept into his heart and drove out all terror and care and misgivings. Never more would the face of Claus be clouded with anxieties. Never more would the trials of life weigh him down as with a burden. The Laughing Valley had claimed him for its own. Would that we all might live in that delightful place, but then maybe it would become overcrowded. For ages it had waited a tenant. Was it chance that led young Claus to make his home in that happy valley? Or, May we guess that his thoughtful friends, the immortals, had directed his steps when he wandered away from Bursey to seek a home in the great world. Certain it is that while the moon peered over the hilltop and flooded with its soft beams the body of the sleeping stranger, the laughing valley was filled with the queer, crooked shapes of the friendly nooks. These people spoke no words but worked with skill and swiftness, the logs that Claus had trimmed with his bright axe were carried to a spot beside the brook and fit upon one another, and during the night a strong and roomy dwelling was built. The birds came sweeping into the valley at daybreak, and their song, so seldom heard in the deep wood, aroused the stranger. He rubbed the web of sleep from his eyelids and looked around, and the house met his gaze. I must thank the nooks for this, he said gratefully. Then he walked to his dwelling and entered at the doorway. A large room faced him, having a fireplace at the end 
and a table and a bench in the middle. Beside the fireplace was a cupboard. Another doorway was beyond. Claus entered here also and saw a smaller room with a bed against the wall and a stool set near a small stand. On the bed were many layers of dried moss brought from the forest. "'Indeed, this is a palace!' exclaimed the smiling Claus. "'I must thank the good nooks again for their knowledge of man's needs as well as their labours in my behalf.' He left his new home with a glad feeling that he was not quite alone in the world, although he had chosen to abandon his forest life. Friendships are not easily broken, and the immortals are everywhere. Upon reaching the brook he drank of the pure water, and then sat down on the bank to laugh at the mischievous gamboles of the ripples as they pushed one another against rocks or crowded desperately to see which should reach the turn beyond. And as they raced away he listened to the song they sang. Rushing, pushing, on we go, not a wave must gentle flow, all are too excited. Every drop delighted turns to spray and merry play as we tumble on our way. Next clause searched for roots to eat, while the daffodils turned their little eyes up at him laughingly and lisped their dainty song. Blooming fairly, blooming rarely, never floweress were so gay. Perfume breathing, joy bequeathing, as our colours be displayed. It made Claus laugh to hear the little things voice their happiness as they nodded gratefully on their stems, but another strain caught his ear as sunbeams fell gently across his face and whispered, Here's gladness that I raise, warm the valley through the days, here is happiness to give, comfort unto all who live. "'Yes,' cried Claus in answer. "'There is happiness and joy in all things here. "'The Laughing Valley is a valley of peace and goodwill.' "'He passed the day talking with ants and beetles "'and exchanging jokes with the light-hearted butterflies, "'and at night he lay on his bed of soft moss and slept soundly. "'Then came the fairies, merry but noiseless, "'bringing skillets and pots and dishes and pans "'and all the tools necessary to prepare food and to comfort a mortal.' With these they filled cupboards and fireplace, finally placing a stout suit of wool clothing on the stool by the bedside. When Claus awoke, he rubbed his eyes again and laughed and spoke aloud his thanks to the fairies and the master woodsman who had sent them. With eager joy he examined all his new possessions, wondering what some might be used for. But in the days when he clung to the girdle of the great Ack and visited the cities of men, his eyes had been quick to note all the manners and customs of the race to which he belonged. So he guessed from the gifts brought by the fairies that the master expected him hereafter to live in the fashion of his fellow creatures. Which means that I must plough the earth and plant corn, he reflected, so that when winter comes I shall have garnered food in plenty. But as he stood in the grassy valley, he saw that to turn up the earth and furrows would be to destroy hundreds of pretty helpless flowers, as well as thousands of tender blades of grass, and this he could not bear to do. Therefore he stretched out his arms and uttered a peculiar whistle he had learned in the forest, afterward crying, Riles of the field flowers, come to me. 
Instantly, a dozen of the queer little Riles were squatting upon the ground before him, and they nodded to him in cheerful greeting. Claus gazed upon them earnestly. "'You are brothers of the forest,' he said. "'I have known and loved many years. I shall love you also when we have become friends. To me, the laws of the Riles, whether those of the forest or the field, are sacred. I have never willfully destroyed one of the flowers you tend so carefully. But—' I must plant grain to use for food during the cold winter. And how am I to do this without killing the little creatures that sing to me so prettily of their fragrant blossoms? The yellow rile, who tends the buttercups, made answer. Fret not, friend Claus. The great Ark has spoken to us of you. There is better work for you in life than to labor for food. And though not being in the forest, Ark has no command over us. Nevertheless, we are glad to favor one he loves. Live, therefore, to do the good work you are resolved to undertake. We, the field riles, will attend to your food supplies. After this speech, the riles were no longer to be seen, and Claus drove from his mind the thought of tilling the earth. When next he wandered back to his dwelling, a bowl of fresh milk stood upon the table. Bread was in the cupboard, and sweet honey filled a dish beside it. A pretty basket of rosy apples and new-plucked grapes were also awaiting him. He called out, Thank you, my friends, to the invisible Riles, and straightway began to eat the food. Thereafter, when hungry, he had but to look into the cupboard to find good supplies brought by the kindly Riles, and the nooks cut and stacked much wood for his fireplace, and the fairies brought him warm blankets and clothing. So began his life in the happy valley, with the favor and friendship of the immortals to minister to his every want. Chapter 2. How Claus Made the First Toy Truly our Claus had wisdom, for his good fortune but strengthened his resolve to befriend the little ones of his own race. He knew his plan was approved by the immortals, else they would not have favored him so greatly. So he began at once to make acquaintances with mankind. He walked through the valley to the plain beyond, and crossed the plain in many directions to reach the abodes of men. These stood singly or in groups of dwellings called villages, and in nearly all the houses, whether big or little, Claus found children. The youngsters soon came to know his merry laughing face and the kind glance of his bright eyes, and the parents while they regarded the young man with some scorn for loving children more than their elders, were content that the girls and boys had found a playfellow who seemed willing to amuse them. So the children romped and played games with claws, and the boys rode upon his shoulders, and the girls nestled in his strong arms, and the babies clung fondly to his knees. Wherever the young man chanced to be, the sound of childish laughter followed him, and to understand this better you must know the children were much neglected in those days, and received little attention from their parents, so that it became to them a marvel that so goodly a man as Claus devoted his time to making them happy. And those who knew him were, you may be sure, very happy indeed. The sad faces of the poor and abused grew bright for once. The cripple smiled despite his misfortune. The ailing ones hushed their moans, and the grieved ones their cries, when their merry friend came nigh to comfort them. Only at the beautiful palace of the Lord of Lourdes and at the frowning castle of the Baron Braun was Claus refused admittance. 
There were children at both places, but the servants at the palace shut the door on the young stranger's face, and the fierce baron threatened to hang him from an iron hook on the castle walls, whereupon Claus sighed and went back to the poor dwellings where he was welcome. After a time, the winter drew near. The flowers lived out their lives and faded and disappeared. The beetles burrowed far into the warm earth. The butterflies deserted the meadows, and the voice of the brook grew hoarse, as if it had taken a cold. One day, snowflakes filled all the air in Laughing Valley, dancing boisterously down toward the earth and clothing in pure white raiment the roof of Claus's dwelling. At night, Jack Frost rapped at the door. "'Come in!' cried Claus. "'Come out!' answered Jack. "'For you have a fire inside!' So Claus came out. He had known Jack Frost in the forest and liked the jolly rogue, even while he mistrusted him. "'There will be rare sport for me tonight, Claus!' shouted the sprite. "'In this glorious weather I shall nip scores of noses and ears and toes before daybreak.' "'If you love me, Jack, spare the children.' begged Claus. Why? asked the other in surprise. They are tender and helpless, answered Claus. But I love to nip the tender ones the best, declared Jack. The older ones are tough and they tire my fingers. The young ones are weak and cannot fight you, said Claus. True, agreed Jack thoughtfully. Well, I will not pinch a child this night, if I can resist the temptation, he promised. Good night, Claus. Good night. The young man went and closed the door, and Jack Frost ran on to the nearest village. Claus threw a log on the fire, which burned up brightly. Beside the hearth sat Blinky, a big cat given to him by Peter the Nook. Her fur was soft and glossy, and she purred never-ending songs of contentment. I shall not see the children again soon said Claus to the cat, who kindly paused in her song to listen. The winter is upon us, and the snow will be deep for many days. I shall be unable to play with my little friends. The cat raised a paw and stroked her nose thoughtfully, but made no reply. So long as the fire burned and Claus sat in his easy chair by the hearth, she did not mind the weather. So passed many days and many long evenings. The cupboard was always full, but... Claus became weary with having nothing to do more than to feed the fire from the big woodpile the Nooks had brought him. One evening he picked up a stick of wood and began to cut it with a sharp knife. He had no thought at first except to occupy his time, and he whistled and sang to the cat as he carved away portions of the stick. Puss sat up on her haunches and watched him, listening at the same time to her master's merry whistle, which she loved to hear even more than her own purring songs. Claus glanced at the puss, and then at the stick he was whittling. Until presently the wood began to have a shape, and the shape was like that of the head of a cat, with two ears sticking upward. Claus stopped whistling to laugh, and then both he and the cat looked at the wooden image in some surprise. Then he carved out the eyes and the nose and rounded the lower part of the head so that it rested upon a neck. Puss hardly knew what to make of it now, and sat up stiffly, as if watching with some suspicion what would come next. Claus knew. The head gave him an idea. He plied his knife carefully and with skill, slowly forming the body of the cat, which he made to sit upon its haunches 
as the real cat did, with her tail wound around her two front legs. The work cost him much time, but the evening was long and he had nothing better to do. Finally, he gave a loud and delighted laugh at the result of his labours, and placed the wooden cat, now completed, upon the hearth opposite the real one. Puss thereupon glared at her image, raised her hair in anger, and uttered a defiant mew. The wooden cat paid no attention, of course, and Claus, much amused, laughed again. Then Blinky advanced toward the wooden image to eye it closely and smell of it intelligently. Eyes and nose told her the creature was wood, in spite of its natural appearance, though Puss resumed her seat and her purring. But as she neatly watched her face with her padded claw, she cast more than one admiring glance at her clever master. Perhaps she felt the same satisfaction we feel when looking upon good photographs of ourselves. The cat's master was himself pleased with his handiwork, without knowing exactly why. Indeed, he had great cause to congratulate himself that night, and all the children throughout the world should have joined his rejoicing, for Claus had made his very first toy. Chapter 3. How the Riles Cuddled the Toys A hush lay on the Laughing Valley now. Snow covered it like a white spread, and pillows of downy flakes drifted before the dwellings where Claus sat feeding the blaze of the fire. The brook gurgled on beneath a heavy sheet of ice, and all living plants and insects nestled close to Mother Earth to keep warm. The face of the moon was hid by dark clouds, and the wind, delighting in the wintry sport, pushed and whirled the snowflakes in so many directions that they could get no chance to fall to the ground. Claus heard the wind whistling and shrieking in its play, and thanked the good nooks again for his comfortable shelter. Blinky washed her face lazily and stared at the coals with a look of perfect content. The toy cat sat opposite the real one and gazed straight ahead, as toy cat should. Suddenly, Claus heard a noise that sounded different from the voice of the wind. It sounded like a voice of wailing, of suffering, and despair. He stood up and listened, but the wind, growing boisterous, shook the door and rattled the windows to distract his attention. He waited until the wind was tired, and then, still listening, he again heard the shrill cry of distress. Quickly he drew on his coat, pulled his cap over his eyes, and opened the door. The wind dashed in and scattered the embers over the hearth, at the same time blowing Blinky's furs so furiously that she crept under the table to escape. Then the door was closed, and Claus was outside peering anxiously into the darkness. The wind laughed and scolded and tried to push him over, but he stood firm. The helpless flakes stumbled against his eyes and dimmed his sight, but he rubbed them away and looked again. Snow was everywhere, white and glittering. It covered the earth and filled the air. The cry was not repeated. Claus turned to go back into the house, but the wind caught him unaware, and he stumbled and fell across a snowdrift. His hand plunged into the drift and touched something that was not snow. This he seized, and pulling it gently toward him, found it to be a child. The next moment he had lifted it to his arms and carried it into the house. The wind followed him through the door, but Claus shut it out quickly. He laid the rescued child on the earth, and brushing away the snow, he discovered it to be Weakum, a little boy who lived in a house beyond the valley. 
Claus wrapped a warm blanket around the little one and rubbed the frost from his limbs. Before long, the child opened his eyes and, seeing where he was, smiled happily. Then Claus warmed some milk and fed it to the boy slowly, while the cat looked on with sober curiosity. Finally, the little one curled up in his friend's arms and fell asleep, and Claus, filled with gladness that he had found the wanderer, held him closely while he slumbered. The wind, finding no more mischief to do, climbed the hill and swept on toward the north. This gave the weary snowflakes time to settle down to earth, and the valley became still. The boy, having slept well in the arms of his friend, opened his eyes and sat up. Then, as a child will, he looked around the room and saw all it contained. "'Your cat is a nice cat, Claus. Let me hold it,' he said at last. But Puss objected and ran away. "'The other cat won't run, Claus,' continued the boy. "'Let me hold that one.' Claus placed the toy in his arms, and the boy held it lovingly and kissed the tip of its wooden ear. "'How did you get lost in the storm, Weakum?' asked Claus. "'I started to walk to my auntie's house and lost my way,' answered Weakum. "'Were you frightened?' "'It was cold,' said Weakum, "'and the snow got in my eyes so I couldn't see, "'and then I kept on till I fell in the snow without knowing where I was, "'and the wind blew the flakes over me and covered me up.' Claus gently stroked his head, and the boy looked up at him and smiled. "'I'm okay now,' said Weakum. "'Yes,' replied Claus happily. "'Now I will put you in my warm bed, and you must sleep there until morning.' when I will carry you back to your mother. Can the cat sleep with me? asked the boy. Yes, if you wish it to, answered Claus. It's a nice cat, Weakum said smiling, as Claus tucked the blankets around him, and presently the little one fell asleep with the wooden toy in his arms. When morning came, the sun claimed Laughing Valley and flooded it with his rays, so Claus prepared to take the lost child back to its mother. "'Can I keep the cat, Claus?' asked Weakum. "'It's nicer than real cats. It doesn't run away or scratch or bite. Can I keep it?' "'Yes, indeed,' answered Claus, pleased that the toy he had made could give pleasure to the child. So he wrapped the boy and the wooden cat in a warm cloak, perching the bundle upon his broad shoulders, and then he tramped through the snow and the drifts of the valley across the plain beyond to the poor cottage where Weakum's mother lived.' "'See, Mama?' cried the boy as soon as they entered. "'I've got a cat!' The good woman wept tears of joy over the rescue of her darling and thanked Claus many times for his kind act. So he carried a warm and happy heart back to his home in the valley, and that night he said to Puss, "'I believe the children will love the wooden cats almost as well as the real ones, and they can't hurt them by pulling their tails or ears. I'll make another.' So this was the beginning of his great work. The next cat was better than the first he had made. While Claw sat whittling it out, the yellow rile came to make him a visit, and so pleased he was with the man's skill that he ran away and brought several of his fellows. And there they sat, the red rile, the black rile, the green rile, the blue rile, and the yellow rile, in a circle on the floor, while Claws whittled and whistled, and the wooden cat grew into shape. If it could be made the same color as a real cat, no one would know the difference, said the yellow rile thoughtfully. The little ones, maybe, would know the difference, replied Claus, pleased with the idea. 
I will bring you some of the red color I use to color my roses and tulips, cried the red rile. And then you can make the cat's lips and tongue red. I will bring you some of the green I use to color my grasses and leaves with, said the green rile. And then you can color the cat's eyes green. They will need a bit of yellow, remarked the yellow rile. I must fetch some of the yellow I use to color my buttercups and goldenrods with. The real cat is black, said the black rile. I will bring some of the black I use to color the eyes of my pansies with, and then you can paint your wooden cat black. I see you have a blue ribbon around Blinky's neck, added the blue rile. I will get you some of the color I use to paint the bluebells and forget-me-nots with, and then you can carve a little wooden ribbon on the toy cat's neck and paint it blue. So the riles disappeared, and by the time Claus had finished carving out the form of the cat, they were all back with their paints and brushes. They made Blinky sit up on the table that Claus might paint the toy cat just the right color, and when the work was done, the riles declared it was exactly as good as a live cat. That is to all appearances, added the red rile. Blinky seemed a little offended by the attention bestowed upon the toy, and that she might not seem to approve the imitation cat, she walked to the corner of the hearth and sat down there with dignified grace. But Claus was delighted, and as soon as the morning came, he started out and tromped through the snow across the valley and plain till he came to a village. There, in a poor hut near the walls of the beautiful palace of the Lord of Lurd, a little girl lay upon a wretched cart, moaning with pain. Claus approached the child and kissed her and comforted her, and then he drew the toy cat from beneath his coat, where he had hidden it, and placed it in her arms. Ah, how well he felt himself repaid for his labor and his long walk when he saw the little one's eyes grow bright with pleasure. She hugged the little kitten tight to her breast, as if it was a precious gem, and would not let it go for a single moment. The fever was quieted, the pain grew less, and she fell into a sweet and refreshing sleep. Claus laughed and whistled and sang all the way home. Never had he been so happy as on that day. When he entered the house, he found Shigra, the lioness, awaiting him. Since his babyhood, Shigra had loved Claus, and while he dwelt in the forest, she had often come to visit him at Desil's bower. After Claus had gone to live in the Laughing Valley, Shigra became lonely and ill at ease, and now she had braved the snowdrifts, which all lions abhor, to see him once more. Shigra was getting old, and her teeth were beginning to fall out, while the hairs that tipped her ears and tail had changed from tawny yellow to white. Claus found her lying on his hearth, and he put his arms around the neck of the lioness and hugged her lovingly. The cat had retired to a far corner. She did not care to associate with Shigra. Claus told his old friend about the cats he had made and how much pleasure they had given Weakham and the sick girl. Shigra did not know much about children. Indeed, if she met a child, she could scarcely be trusted not to devour it. But she was interested in Claus's new labors and said, These images seem very attractive, yet I cannot see why you should make cats which are very unimportant animals. Suppose now that I am here you make the image of a lioness, the queen of all beasts, then indeed your children shall be happy and safe at the same time. Claus thought this was a good suggestion, 
So he got a piece of wood and sharpened his knife, while Shigra crouched upon the hearth at his feet. With much care he carved the head in the likeness of the lioness, even to the two fierce teeth that curved over her lower lip and the deep frowning lines above her wide-opened eyes. When it was finished, he said, "'You have a terrible look, Shigra.' "'Then the image is like me,' she answered, "'for I am indeed terrible to all who are not my friends.' Claus now carved out the body with Shigra's long tail trailing behind it. The image of the crouching lioness was very lifelike. "'It pleases me.' said Shigra, yawning and stretching her body gracefully. Now I will watch you paint. He brought out the paints the Rouse had given him from the cupboard and coloured the image to resemble the real Shigra. The lioness placed her big padded paws upon the edge of the table and raised herself while she carefully examined the toy that was her likeness. You are skilled indeed, she said proudly. The children will like that better than cats. I'm sure. Then snarling at Blinky, who arched her back in terror and whined fearfully, she walked toward her forest home with stately strides. Chapter 4 How Little Mary Became Frightened The winter was over now, and all the Laughing Valley was filled with joyous excitement. The brook was happy at being free again, and it gurgled more boisterously than ever, and dashed so recklessly against the rocks that it sent showers of spray high into the air. The grass thrust its sharp little blades upward through the mat of dead stalks where it had hidden from the snow. But the flowers were yet too timid to show themselves, although the riles were busy feeding their roots. The sun was in remarkably good humor and sent his rays dancing merrily throughout the valley. Claus was eating his dinner one day when he heard a timid knock at the door. "'Come in!' he called. No one entered, but after a pause came another rapping. Claus jumped up and threw open the door. Before him stood a small girl holding a smaller brother fast by the hand. "'Is that you, Claus?' she asked shyly. "'Indeed I am, my dear,' he answered with a laugh, as he caught both children in his arms and kissed them. You are very welcome, and you have just come in time to share my dinner. He took them to the table and fed them with fresh milk and nut cakes. When they had eaten enough, he asked, Why have you made this long journey to see me? I want a cat, replied little Mary, and her brother, who had not yet learned to speak many words, nodded his head and exclaimed also like an echo, Cat! Oh, you want my toy cat, do you? returned Claus, greatly pleased to discover his creations were so popular with the children. The little visitors nodded eagerly. Unfortunately, I have but one cat now ready, for I carried two to children in the town yesterday, and the one I have shall be given to your brother, Mary, because he is smaller, and the next one I shall make will be for you. The boy's face was bright with smiles as he took the precious toy Claus held out to him, but little Mary covered her face with her arms and began to sob grievously. I want a cat now, she wailed. Her disappointment made Claus feel miserable for a moment, and then he suddenly remembered Shigra. Don't cry, darling, he said soothingly. I have a toy much nicer than a cat, and you shall have that. <laughs> 
He went to the cupboard and drew out the image of the lioness, which he placed on the table before Mary. The girl raised her arm and gave one glance at the fierce teeth and glaring eyes of the beast, and then uttering a terrified scream, she rushed from the house. The boy followed her, also screaming lustily, even dropping his precious cat in fear on his way out. For a moment Claude stood motionless, being puzzled and astonished. Then he threw Shigra's image into the cupboard and ran after the children, calling to them not to be frightened. Little Mary stopped in her flight, and her brother clung to her skirt, but they both cast fearful glances at the house until Claus had assured them many times that the beast was locked away in the cupboard. "'Yet you were frightened seeing it,' he asked. "'It is only a toy to play with.' "'It's bad,' said Mary decidedly. Uh, "'Just horrid. Not, not a bit nice like cats.' "'Perhaps you're right,' returned Claus thoughtfully. "'But if you'll return with me to the house, I will soon make you a pretty cat.' So they timidly entered the house again, having faith in their friend's work, and afterwards they had the joy of watching Claus carve out a cat from a bit of wood and paint it in natural colours. It did not take him long to do this, for he had become skilled with his knife by this time, and Mary loved her toy the more dearly because she had seen it being made. After his little visitors had trotted away on their journey homeward, Claus sat in deep thought and then he decided that such fierce creatures as his friend the lioness would never do as models from which to fashion toys. There must be nothing to frighten the dear babies, he reflected, and while I know she grew well and I am not afraid of her, it is but natural that children should look upon her image with terror. Hereafter I will choose such mild-mannered animals as squirrels and rabbits and deers and lambkins from which to carve my toys for then the little ones will love rather than fear them. He began his work that very day, and before bedtime had made a wooden rabbit and a lamb. They were not quite so lifelike as the cats had been, because they were formed from memory, while Blinky had sat very still for claws to look at while he worked. But the new toys pleased the children nonetheless, and the fame of Claus's playthings quickly spread to every cottage on plain and in village. He always carried his gifts to the sick and crippled children, but those who were strong enough walked to the house in the valley to ask for them, so a little path was soon worn from the plain to the door of the toy-maker's cottage. First came the children who had been playmates of Claus, before he began to make toys. These, you may be sure, were well supplied. Then children who lived farther away heard of the wonderful images and made journeys to the valley to secure them. All little ones were welcome, and never a one went away empty-handed. This demand for his handiwork kept Claus busily occupied, but he was quite happy in knowing the pleasure he gave to so many of the dear children. His friends, the immortals, were pleased with his success and supported him bravely. The nook selected for him clear pieces of soft wood that his knife might not be blunted in cutting them. The riles kept him supplied with paints of all colours and brushes fashioned from the tips of timothy grasses. The fairies discovered that the workmen needed saws and chisels and hammers and nails as well as knives and brought him a good array of such tools. Claus soon turned his living room into a most wonderful workshop. He built a bench before the window and arranged his tools and paints so he could reach everything as he sat on his stool. And as he finished toy after toy to delight the hearts of little children, 
he found himself growing so gay and happy, he could not refrain from singing and laughing and whistling all the day long. Ho, ho, ho! It's because I live in the Laughing Valley, where everything else laughs, said Claus. But that was not the reason. Chapter 5 How Bessie Blysom Came to the Laughing Valley One day, as Claus sat before his door to enjoy the sunshine, while he busily carved the head and horns of a toy deer, he looked up and discovered a glittering cavalcade of horsemen approaching through the valley. When they drew near, he saw that the band consisted of a score of men-at-arms, clad in bright armor and bearing in their hands spears and battle-axes. In front of these rode little Bessie Blysom, the pretty daughter of that proud Lord of Lourdes, who had once driven claws from his palace. Her palfrey was pure white, its bridle was covered with glittering gems, and its saddle draped with cloth of gold, richly embroidered. The soldiers were sent to protect her from harm while she journeyed. Claus was surprised, but he continued to whittle and sing until the cavalcade drew up before him. Then the little girl leaned over the neck of her palfrey and said, Please, Mr. Claus, I would like a toy. Her voice was so pleading that Claus jumped up at once and stood beside her, but he was puzzled how to answer her request. "'You are a rich lord's daughter,' he said, "'and have all you desire.' "'Except toys,' added Bessie. "'There are no toys in all the world but yours.' "'And I make them for the poor children, "'who have nothing else to amuse them,' continued Claus. "'Do poor children love to play with toys more than rich ones?' asked Bessie. "'I suppose not.' said Claus thoughtfully. Am I to blame because my father is a lord? Must I be denied pretty toys that I have longed for because other children are poorer than I am? She inquired earnestly. I am afraid you must, dear, he answered, for the poor have nothing else with which to amuse themselves. You have your pony to ride, your servants to wait on you, and every comfort that money can procure. But I want toys! cried Bessie, wiping away the tears that forced themselves into her eyes. If I cannot have them, I shall be very unhappy. Claus was troubled, for her grief recalled to him the thought that his desire was to make all children happy, without regard to their condition in life. Yet, while so many poor children were clamoring for his toys, he could not bear to give one of them to Bessie Blysom, who had so much already to make her life happy. Listen, my child, he said gently. All the toys I am now making are promised to others, but the next shall be yours, since your heart longs for it. Come to me again in two days, and it shall be ready for you. Bessie gave a cry of delight, and leaning over her pony's neck, she kissed Claus prettily upon his forehead. Then calling to her men-at-arms, she rode gaily away, leaving Claus to resume his work. If I am to supply the rich children as well as the poor ones, he thought, I shall not have a moment to spare in the whole year. But is it right I should give to the rich? Surely I must go to Nessie and talk to her about this matter. So when he had finished the toy deer, which was very like a deer he had known in the forest glades, he walked into Bursey and made his way to the bower of the beautiful nymph Nessie, who had been his foster mother. She greeted him tenderly and lovingly and listened to the story, 
of the visit of Bessie. And now tell me, he said, shall I give toys to rich children? We of the forest know nothing of riches, she replied. It seems to me that one child is like another child, since they are all made of the same clay, and that riches are like a gown which may be put on or taken away, leaving the child unchanged. But the fairies are guardians of mankind, and no mortal children better than I. Let us call the fairy queen. This was done, and the queen and the fairies sat beside them, and heard Claus relate his reasons for thinking the rich children could get along without his toys, and also what the nymph had said. Nessie, it is right, declared the queen, for whether it be rich or poor, a child's longings for pretty playthings are but natural. Rich Bessie's heart may suffer as much grief as poor Mary's. She can be just as lonely and discontented, or just as gay and happy. I think, friend Claus, it is your duty to make all the little ones glad, whether they chance to live in palaces or in cottages. Your words are wise, fair queen, replied Claus, and my heart tells me they are just as they are wise. Hereafter all children may claim my services. Then he bowed before the gracious fairy, and kissing Nessie's lips, went back into his valley. At the brook he stopped to drink, and afterwards he sat on the bank and took a piece of moist clay in his hands, while he thought of what sort of toy he should make for Bessie Blysom. He did not notice that his fingers were working the clay into a shape, until, glancing downward, he found he had unconsciously formed a head that bore a slight resemblance to the nymph Nessiel. At once he became interested. Gathering more of the clay from the bank, he carried it to his house. Then, with the aid of his knife and a bit of wood, he succeeded in working the clay into the image of a toy nymph. With skillful strokes, he formed long, waving hair on the head and covered the body with a gown of oak leaves, while two feet sticking out the bottom of the gown were clad in sandals. But the clay was soft, and Claus found he must handle it gently to avoid ruining his pretty work. Perhaps the rays of the sun will draw out the moisture and cause the clay to become hard, he thought, so he laid the image on a flat board and placed it in the glare of the sun. This done, he went to his bench and began painting the toy deer, and soon he became so interested in his work he forgot all about the clay nymph. But the next morning, happening to notice it as it lay on the board, he found that the sun had baked it to the hardness of stone, and it was strong enough now to be safely handled. Claus now painted the nymph with great care to the likeness of Nessile, giving it deep blue eyes, white teeth, rosy lips, and ruddy brown hair. The gown he colored oak leaf green, and when the paint was dry, Claus himself was charmed with the new toy. Of course, it was not nearly so lovely as the real Nessile, but considering the material from which it was made, Claus thought it to be very beautiful. When Bessie, riding upon a white palfrey, came to his dwelling the next day, Claus presented her with a new toy. The little girl's eyes were brighter than ever as she examined the pretty image, and she loved it at once and held it close to her breast as a mother does to her child. "'What is it, Claus?' she asked. Now Claus knew that nymphs do not like to be spoken of by mortals, so he could not tell Bessie that it was the image of Nessile he had given her. But as it was a new toy, he searched his mind for a new name to call it by, and the first word he thought of, he decided, would work very well. "'It is called a dolly, my dear,' 
he said to Bessie. "'I shall call the dolly my baby,' returned Bessie, kissing it fondly. "'And I shall tend to it and care for it, just as the nurses care for me. "'Thank you very much, Claus. "'Your gift has made me happier than I have ever been before.' "'And then she rode away, hugging the toy in her arms. "'And Claus, seeing her delight, thought he would make another dolly, "'better and more natural than the first. He brought more clay from the brook, and remembering that Bessie had called the dolly her baby, he resolved to form this one to a baby's image. That was no difficult task to the clever workman, and soon the baby doll was lying on the bench, and placed in the sun to dry. Then, with the clay that was left, he began to make an image of Bessie Blysom herself. This was not so easy, for he found he could not make the silken robe of the Lord's daughter out of the common clay, so he called the fairies to his aid and asked them to bring him coloured silks with which to make a real dress for the clay image. The fairies set off at once on their errands, and before nightfall returned with a generous supply of silks and laces and golden threads. Claus now became impatient to complete his new dolly. Instead of waiting for the next day's sun, he placed the clay image upon his hearth and covered it over with glowing coals. By morning, when he drew the dolly from the ashes, it had baked as hard as if it had lain a full day in the hot sun. Now Claus became a dressmaker as well as a toy maker. He cut the lavender silk and neatly sewed it into a beautiful gown that just fit the new dolly. And he put a lace collar around its neck and pink silk shoes on its feet. The natural color of the baked clay is a light gray, but Claus painted the face to resemble the color of flesh and he gave the dolly Bessie's own brown eyes and golden hair and rosy cheeks. It was really a beautiful thing to look upon, and sure to bring joy to some child's heart. While Claus was admiring it, he heard a knock at the door, and little Mary entered. Her face was sad, and her eyes red with continued weeping. "'What is grieving you, my dear?' asked Claus, taking the child in his arms. "'I, I broke my cat,' sobbed Mary." "'How?' he inquired, his eyes twinkling. "'I dropped him, and he broke off his tail, "'and then I dropped him and broke off his ear, "'and now he's all spoiled.' "'Claus laughed. "'Never mind, Mary, dear. "'How would you like this new dolly instead of a cat?' "'Mary looked at the silk-robed doll, "'and her eyes grew big with astonishment. "'Oh, Claus!' She cried, clapping her small hands together with rapture. Can I have the beautiful lady? Do you like it, he asked. I love it. It's better than cats. Then take it, my dear, and be careful not to break it. Mary took the dolly with a joy that was almost reverent, and her face dimpled with smiles as she started along the path toward home.